Amen. All these songs we sing. Young people, I challenge you to love old songs. They are rich. Not all of them, not all of them, but there are many that are so rich. Just because they're old does not make them out of uh, relevance for your heart and your soul. And people advanced in years, I challenge you, love new songs, right? Love new songs, songs that are rich and Christ-centered and laden with the gospel, good for your soul as well. One of the things we've chosen as a church is to be a church where grandchildren and grandparents can stand side by side and sing with all their hearts. And that means that we both have to work in that effort at both ends of the equation. We, we want to sing good songs from all the ages, and we will sing forever together. We are in Luke chapter 8, the final sermon this morning in Luke chapter 8. You can see I brought my deathbed this morning. I'm going to be looking for a volunteer at some point, so be warned. Let me pray as we dive into the text this morning. Lord, we love you. We are in awe of you. We have experienced this living hope through Jesus our Savior. We have tasted of this love that is it's just so vast. We reach for words to put, put expression to this love that we know in you. We don't deserve it, and yet we have been radically changed by it. We were blind to it, and you opened our eyes to you to see love. We thank you for changing us, and Lord, make us this kind of people. We, we want to be from the inside out like you. We want to, to, to shine, to testify uh, like, like your glory calls us to, and so we need your help. And part of this work, Lord, today is this text. I pray that it would meet us. I pray that it would equip us. Lord, work even now as I speak these words. I pray that you would speak to your people, that we would hear from you, all of us collectively. Submit to your word, to delight in your word, Lord. We need you in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled the sermon, Holiness and Hope. Holiness and Hope. Um, Luke chapter 8. 40 through 56, Jesus has had quite an amazing 24-hour period. Okay, so you recall the crowds had pressed in, and he was exhausted and tired, and he had been teaching and, and performing miracles, and he needed to get away. He was exhausted, and so he said to the disciples, let's get on the boat, and let's go to the other side. So they uh, get on the boat, and Jesus falls fast asleep, and then the storm hits, and so he calms the storm. And they land on the other side, and he's greeted by a demoniac. And so he delivers the demoniac. And they get back in the boat, and they row back across. Now, think of the, the events, the chain of events that have happened here. If you're one of the apostles, one of the disciples in that boat, you, you are processing as the oars are rowing or the sail is flapping in the, in the breeze on the Sea of Galilee. You just talking with one another, maybe you pull aside in the back of the boat, and you're like, can you believe he did that? I, can, I still can't. I, do, am I al alive here? Am I awake? Did I actually see that happen? Yeah, we all did. So 
these accounts that, that we read as we go through the Gospels, this is extremely personal to those eyewitnesses. And Luke brings us that testimony from those eyewitnesses that this happened. We were in awe. And Jesus is not done yet. So he heads back to what I believe is Capernaum and uh, to his home base of his ministry in Galilee. We're going to see a transition happening in chapter 9 where that, that home base, the, the Galilean ministry, comes to a close and Jesus begins to, to make his trek toward Jerusalem. Humble desperation is what I titled these few verses here as we pick up the text in verse 40. Let's read. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So Jesus steps off the boat. I mean, he, if you're Jesus, if you're at all you know, like me, you're thinking breakfast, okay? Uh, we did not eat over there. Uh, we went through a storm. It's been a while. Let's find some breakfast. Uh, the first thing he's greeted by are these people who are, I mean, just crowded on the beach there at Capernaum. They see the boat returning. They know he's coming from a long distance out. You can see that. And so they begin to gather. The word spreads. And he is met as he sets foot on land by the crowds. They're still there, eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Kind of reminds that of, of where we are. We're awaiting his return. He's coming back. We know he's coming back. We just don't know when. And our eager anticipation is the same focus. Here he comes. He is our hope. All of the stories. Now, we are only given a glimpse into two events that take place in these verses. But think of all of the other people who had traveled miles and miles. All of the issues, all of the, the, the weight and the concern and the problems that they were bringing to that beach. And Jesus steps into the crowd. Now, Jairus is described here as a ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Uh, that simply means that he was one of a handful of men who were kind of coordinating the worship effort there. They would choose who would read the scriptures, they would approve who would teach, and uh, all of the work of worship in Capernaum. And we know it was a significant place because uh, we've met the, the Roman centurion that built this spectacular synagogue in Capernaum. And uh, if you were not here, we actually saw pictures of the foundation stones of that when we were there. We, we were right there looking at those actual rocks. And so this man is a man of great prestige and influence. He was well known. Uh, he was at the center of uh, life in the town. Everybody knew this man. He would have been extremely regarded and respected. He was also the father of a 12-year-old girl. And only Luke gives us this detail this girl was his only daughter, his only daughter. The age of 12 at this time in Jesus' day for a Jewish community was uh, the entrance into marriable age. And so she was right in the age of exciting changes in life and, 
all of the betrothal process was about to get underway. You think of, as a father, the excitement of those days and the anticipation. However, this man, he was dealing with all kinds of other concerns. His daughter was extremely sick. We don't have any detail as to what it was she had, but she is very ill, and he falls at Jesus' feet, which we can't miss that. This man, with all the regard and the respect that he had, is, is displaying humble desperation at the foot of Jesus. He falls to the ground and begins to plead urgently for Jesus' help. Come, my daughter is sick. Mark tells us this, he said it this way, my little daughter is at the point of death. This is an urgent request. And then he expresses his faith. Come, Jesus, lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. An expression of faith. We've got to feel the urgency of a moment like this. It would be as if there was a medical emergency in uh, the congregation right now, and the call went out, hurry, we need to get this person to the hospital. Let's go, right now. Did you feel that? In the crowd, all the other needs, everything else that's happening, freezes. This girl is about to die. Go! And so he urges Jesus, and, and you, you almost get the sense that he's just like tugging on his sleeve. Come, hurry, please, please come. If we don't feel the urgency of this, then we won't appreciate what about, is about to happen in the events that unfold. Now, faith from the fringe. This is another part of this story. Verse 42b. As Jesus went, now just see that, Jesus went. He, he, he heard this request, he helped the man up, and they're going, they're moving, I imagine, quickly. They're moving through the crowd, and people are pressing in. The people begin to press around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had had this condition, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Okay, now we're, we're having this, this moment. We're moving with Jesus in the crowd, and all of a sudden, you're just kind of like, wait, what? what? I thought we were going to save the daughter. What are we talking about? Now we're talking about someone else. This is not the daughter. This is another woman. The daughter is 12 years of age. This woman has been suffering for 12 years. Hemorrhaging. 12 years of suffering, poor and marginalized. She has sought help in every possible place she could find. She has spent all of her money. There's no money left. Think of what this would have been like. Well, I heard that there's this healer over here. He charges, but if you save up enough money, I'm sure he can help you. So she goes, and he doesn't, and she has less money. No, I heard there was this person over here with a potion, and in this day, there were all kinds of zany medical ideas. She tried them all. In fact, it says that she suffered under them. Not only is she suffering the hemorrhaging, but she's suffering in the, just the, the zany medical attempts to solve the problem. And in that, she spent all her money. 
Now, we need to enter in here a little more and understand how significant this condition is. It's a real problem. It's, it's more than just a medical issue. It's a social problem. She is unable to solve this hemorrhaging issue. She can't solve it. She's sought all the help she can, and she can't solve it. The problem is, is that because she is hemorrhaging, she is declared, by the law of Moses, unclean. She is unclean, which means that she is not able to participate in any form of worship. She is excluded from worship until she is clean. This is basically the same as a leper. She would have been pushed away. She was not to associate with people because if if they touch her, then they're unclean. And so she would have been excluded from social life nearly uh, completely. In fact, uh, scholars believe if she was married she would have likely have been divorced over this. Divorce in this day was a problem, big time. And we're going to see this as we move through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus addresses this very specifically. But you could divorce so easily, and uh, her husband, husband might have just put her away completely. I don't want this. I can't have this. Be gone. Unwanted. Unholy. Unclean unaccepted, and frankly, unwelcome. In a crowd like this, there is no way she should be anywhere near it. Not at all. So you've got to picture what she has done to even get in proximity with Jesus. She has concealed her identity. She is probably has a hood over her head. She is probably coming through the crowd, trying to be as low profile as possible. The chaos of the crowd actually helps her get close enough to Jesus. If any of these people, especially the religious elite, saw her and knew she was bumping into people as she was getting through this, oh, they would have had her thrown out of the city. What she did was totally unexpected, completely unexpected. Let's see what she did. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Okay, now there's some things happening here that we need to understand. First of all, uh, the fringe of the garment is is an interesting word. It's a term that refers to something that we might not think of. So if I'm wearing a, a garment, it's not up here. This is not the fringe. The fringe would have referred to the four tassels that were to be uh, placed in each corner of a faithful, practicing Jew's garment. So everywhere they go, they have these four tassels, and they're, they're usually low, down low. Let me read to you about these tassels and the command and, and why they were to be there and what purpose they served. From the book of Numbers, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations. And put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Why? It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. The law. To do them. To obey them. This was a constant reminder that we are under the law of God. He is Lord. And He has spoken. And we are to obey. Remember to do them. And not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, 
which you are inclined to whore after. He speaks of the idolatrous inclinations of their heart to, to leave the law of God and pursue any other false idol of the day. And so you shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy. There we go. That's the heart of it. That's the call. I am holy, God says. I've chosen you to be my people and you, as my representatives who are to image my glory, you are to be holy to your God. And the reminder was the obedience of the law as he's commanded. So here's Jesus. And he is walking in this crowd. And there's people crowding all around. And somehow, she gets in, gets low, and she sees the tassel, one of the tassels on his robe. And she reaches out and touches it. And as soon as she does, she's healed. She knows it. It is immediate healing. What would have that felt like to be this woman? For 12 years with all of this thing, you think of the, the loss of blood and the weakness and the uh, anemic feeling that she would constantly be battling, and then all of a sudden, bam, like a jolt of adrenaline. And she knew it. She knew. She was healed. She broke a law. She was unclean. She was not to be touching anybody. But in faith, she reached out and she touched the tassel of Jesus' robe. And in that moment, rather than Jesus being made unclean, she was made clean. Who's holy? Who has perfectly remembered the law? Whose tassels are the perfect obedience of the command in numbers? Jesus they're not, they're not some supernatural tassels. It is himself. It is Christ himself. He is the Holy One. And he is so holy that her contact as one unholy is reversed. Just like when Jesus touched the leper and the leprosy fled and he was clean. This is our Savior, the Holy One our hope. Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. Peter's always so helpful, isn't he? Okay, thank you, Peter, for stating the obvious. They are? Really? I did not know that. Okay, but he's just, you, I mean, you can feel for Peter. He's trying to help out. What do you mean who touched you? This is a chaotic mess. Let's go back to the boat. What are we doing here? All these people, they're going crazy. We're trying to get somewhere. All these people are in the way. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Uh, the word touch there is a, it's purposeful. It's not just bumped into me. The, he's, he's saying, Someone reached out and touched me. I know it. Now, what's Jesus doing here? What's he doing? It's interesting to read commentators on this. Some say that Jesus didn't know. Some say that he knows exactly who touched him. I'm inclined to think that it's 
the second, that, that he does know. He knows what's going on. I, I don't see Jesus accidentally healing people. That doesn't just square with who he is and, and how he works. So why is he making... He has paused the procession, this urgent move to go save the girl. He stops it all, and he turns, and he says, who did that? He wants to see the face of faith. He wants to see her. He wants to see her. He wants to know her. Her preference at this point would be to get the gift, get the healing, and get away, right? Hide out. Because she, what she did was not okay. She, she was embarrassed that she had done that, and it worked. She would prefer just to get away. That's not how it works for Jesus. If the woman was healed, but she did not know Christ, what good is that? You see, the greatest thing that Jesus can give is not physical healing. So many people get this wrong. The greatest thing that Jesus can give is not physical healing. It's Jesus. It's himself. It's relationship with him. She has tasted of this amazing grace, but she has yet to see his face and look into his eyes and be known by him and know him. Here's the other thing that I found significant. What he does in calling her out of the crowd is probably the best thing for her at this moment. Her shame, her, her hiding, her shrinking away from people. She's healed. She doesn't have to do that anymore. And so Jesus is loving her by, in a sense, calling her out to the front so that everybody can see what has in fact happened. It's done. She's whole again. You don't have to exclude her. You don't have to push her away. So he pulls her out of this crowd. Listen to how this goes. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, oh, what an awesome, close, relational word that is. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Right? Those 12 years are done. These people, they are now your family again. This is your home. This is your town. No more unworthiness. No more exclusion. No more pushing away or shunning, no more hiding. Your faith in Christ has made you well. How much did it cost? Everyone else charged, didn't they? Here's what Jesus did not do. That'll be a hundred denarii. It was free for her. It was free. The cost was taken upon by Jesus himself. He paid and she received a free gift. She knew him and he looked into her eyes and she experienced what true life looks like. Go in peace. Go in peace. This is a magnificent delay 
Sometimes we have plans for our days. Sometimes we go into our day with grand plans. I fall prey to this all the time. Oh, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get this done. I've got all of these things. I know I can do this all. And Jenny will often say to me, Jer, that's a lot. That's a lot. One of the things I've learned as time goes by is to plan for the sovereign plan of God. It's the margins, right? It's that, it's that space that you kind of have to plan for because there, there needs to be room to stop and talk on the phone and cry with someone and help someone. You've got to plan sometimes for a delay. They're all connected. This whole thing is connected. It was a purposeful delay. It was sovereignly appointed. And Jesus stopped, took as much time as was needed. Now, if you are Jairus, this is killing you. Your hope has paused while he is helping someone else who has a real need. You can just imagine him tugging on Jesus' sleeve. My daughter my daughter, did you forget? We're in a rush. This is, this is urgent. Come, come, come. A magnificent delay. Now, Gracie, will you come be my volunteer? I have a daughter who is 13. She is my only daughter, and she volunteered so kindly to die this morning. So, come be sick, crawl on your deathbed. Okay, all right. Now, here's the significance of this. I, I, just, I do want us to feel this. As a father, if this was real, if, if this was happening, you feel that? That's my daughter. The floods of memories... 12 years, all of what is to come. And here she is, about to die. Do you feel the desperation of the man who is tugging at Jesus' sleeve? Please come, please, no, please. Hurry. His heart is wrenched with the potential of losing his only daughter. Raising the stakes, verse 49 while he was still speaking to this woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Now, the someone from the, uh, the house of Jairus feels a little blunt in those words. That's a hard message to hear in the midst of all the chaos and all the tugging and all the people he just shows up and says, your daughter's dead. Leave him alone. It's too late. You don't understand. She's dead. The teacher can't do anything for you now, Jairus. It's over. This is the sound of unbelief. This is sometimes what confronts your faith, isn't it? Are you still clinging to this? She's dead. Just give up. We got work to do now. There's a funeral. There's all kinds of grieving. There's all kinds of chaos. This is, we got things that we've got to work on. 
Here's what Jesus said. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, says to Jairus, looks him in the eyes now, and, and hear these words, friends. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. He strengthens the faith of this man who has felt the mountain of anguish in the death of his only daughter. Think of the range of emotions he is battling now. Despair, disbelief, the whole range of responses when you hear words like that. And struggling with all his might to believe that this man who has just spoken these words is able to raise her from the dead. The battle to believe is real. For some of you, it was all week, wasn't it? For some of you, it is hour by hour, minute by minute. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus is on the scene. He's here. And He's able. Now, raising the dead, verse 51 when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now, what we have here is a, a meeting of Jairus and his, and his wife. What, what would that have been like? Okay, you've got to try to feel the moment here. His wife is devastated. She's probably completely in tears, and he embraces her and hugs her, and he says, trust trust him. I brought Jesus. He's here. No, he's too late. No, he's not. He's not too late. Just trust. And then he brings in Peter, James, and John. And, and this is the first moment where the inner circle in Luke are recorded as, as brought into a special kind of sacred set-apart moment. It happens many times from here on out. But Jesus doesn't bring all 12 in. He just takes the, the, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he brings him in. So five people accompany Jesus into the house. He goes into the house, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Okay, there's a lot happening in this. Jewish funeral ceremonies are totally different than ours. Totally. When you come to a funeral, there's this just, just instinctual quiet. You speak softly, right? It's just a, a, a somber, weighty experience. Even though we know that there is life in Christ, we don't have anything like what this would have been like. They were professional mourners and wailers that were brought in and the funeral was on immediately upon death because you can't wait. You have to get that body in the tomb, quick. And so the funeral is already taking place. The mourners are there. There may have been someone playing flute. They would purposely play off notes, sour notes, chaos, and, and loud. Someone would even come and begin to shout the names of other deceased family members just to heap on all the grief all at once. I don't know why. I don't get the sense that Jesus really enjoyed it. He says, what are you doing? 
Why are you weeping and mourning? In fact, in Mark, we read that he put them out of the house. He kicked them out. Get out of here with that. Get out of here. And then he says this, and this really upset them. She's asleep. She's not dead. Now, tell that to professional mourners. They know what dead looks like. They they understand here. We're not talking about asleep. What do you think we are, Jesus? Are Are you crazy? And they laugh at Jesus. Raising the dead for Jesus is like waking someone from the sleep. It's like a parent going in to wake up a child and saying, Honey, it's time to get up. That's what it's like for Jesus. They're asleep. They're not dead. Now, he's not saying she's not dead. He's shifting the paradigm to Christ. The reality is that death is not The final word. His sovereign power is. He takes her by the hand and he says, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. Okay, now these words are significant. In Mark, we read this. He says these words, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. Now the etymological connection of that first word is is like saying little lamb little lamb it's time to wake up so he comes in and and you just picture this here's parents they're they're in tears peter james and john fishermen like uh, what do we do you know they're standing there and jesus comes in and he's on his knees and he takes a cold clammy hand and a lifeless body. And he speaks these words. Little lamb, it's time to wake up. Hey, that was pretty good. You did good. (laughs) And she sits up. Now imagine this, okay? So her heart began to beat. Her lungs filled with air. Her eyes opened, and who did she see? She saw Jesus. She saw her Savior. He woke her from the dead. That's incredible. I think these words are special, and they, they, they capture for me what this, I would call it tender omnipotence. Omnipotence means all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Christ has all power. And in that moment of holding her hand, it is the most tender, gentle word that raises her from the dead. Now, she got up and started walking around. Just so we're clear, this is not some dream that we're in. Jesus says, "Um, give that girl something to eat. And maybe while he's at it, and bring me a breakfast burrito too, right? Because I'm hungry. You, you need a muffin? There's some stuff back there. Good job. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. Her parents were amazed. And then he charged them, tell no one what had happened. Tell no one what had happened. Now, there's fascinating discussion about why he would say this. I think it's the same reason he said it in the past in this area. The crowds are, are just pressing in. His 
publicity is gone viral. And I think trying to encourage them, don't make a huge thing about this. I'm still trying to deal with all these crowds. I don't think what he's saying is, this is something that isn't glorious that should be spoken about. Because I guarantee you, these people were blown away at what Jesus had done for their, their daughter. And a time would come when they couldn't shut up about it. But he says, right now, just enjoy this moment. Just, just take this in. Have some food. Hmm. Our response this morning. Do not fear, only believe. Realize God's timing is always perfect. He's never late. He's never not where he needs to be. He's never forgetful or saying, oh, I guess I didn't do that right. No, it's perfect. That delay was planned of old and accomplished in perfect timing such that he would come not just to heal a sick girl, but to raise her from the dead. In fact, when Jesus is telling the, the family of Lazarus and the disciples, he says to them, I am glad that I wasn't there because now Lazarus is dead and I want you to see and believe. I'm glad that he died so that you will believe. And he walks then and raises him from, from, him from the dead. God's timing is perfect. There are moments where the fear of our situation is overwhelming. And I would just call you to this, whatever it is this morning, and I know there's heavy stuff, heavy stuff. Do not fear, only believe. Lock eyes with Jesus. Lock eyes with Jesus and trust Him. Trust Him. The fact of the matter is, is this young girl was raised to life only to die again. She, wasn't, she didn't have an, et- an eternal body. She was not glorified. She was alive, and so was Lazarus. He died again. So we need to have a, a category for the kind of life that Jesus is pointing us to here in the resurrection. This is not the ultimate display of it. It's a pointer to what he will do for all who place their faith in him. To give life, the kind of life that death and disease cannot even touch. The life that Jesus offers is not threatened by disease or death. And sometimes disease and death come, don't they? They do. And Jesus is bigger. Jesus is bigger. The trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we will be caught up together with him. And so we will always be with Jesus, our Lord. In all these things, my friends, we are more than conquerors. How? How is it? How are we to conquer disease and death, heartache, storms, enemy opposition? In Christ, through Him who loved us. That's the only way. 
That's the only way. So the question begs this morning, where have you placed your faith? Is your faith firmly rooted in Jesus? Or are you looking to every single possible other option that you can find? Because I'm telling you, there's nothing else that will hold your heart, your soul, like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of the love that you have shown, even in this storyline here. These events as recorded in the Gospel of Luke point us to spectacular displays of your glory. We see, we love what we see. We see a tender mercy, a, a, a tender omnipotence. We worship you. Lord, there are people right here today in this room that need a touch from your hand. They came heavy laden. They came sad and weighed down, hurting, some dealing with chronic pain, others dealing with failing marriages, some dealing with wayward children, some dealing with, with just disease that just won't stop, pain that just continues to shred their bodies. Lord, we all come with the reality of, of darkness and sin in this world, our desperate need for forgiveness and life and light in where else are we going to look? You are our only hope, Jesus. We fix our eyes on you, and we do not fear. We place our faith in you. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would bring salvation and forgiveness this morning as sinners confess their sins and look to you for forgiveness. I pray that you would bring strength and encouragement to run the race, the marathon of faith Lord, strengthen our faith. Hold us as we hold you. Help us to love one another in the midst of the trials. And bring us to yourself such that someday we will sing forever the praise of one who is faithful, faithful and good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.